I'm going to read today's passage from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. If you'll take your Bible and open it up there, follow along with me as I read from God's Word. The Bible says, And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, that is Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing into him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy began or became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When we had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And some translations add, and fasting. It was a catchy tune, came out in the early to mid-1960s. In 1965, this catchy tune was made into a movie. Some of you might remember it. Words were written by two men in partnership. One named John Lennon, the other Paul McCartney. The words that they wrote go like this. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Help. It was a title song for a 1965 film and its soundtrack album. In 2004, the song Help was ranked among the top 500 Rolling Stones' greatest songs of all time. It came in at number 29. When it was written, Paul McCartney was 23 and John Lennon was 25. The rest of the song shows you that these are young men who are coming maybe to the end of themselves a little bit and actually discovering that they need other people's help. 
that they can't do everything on their own. In 1984, Paul McCartney was giving an interview to a prominent U.S. magazine. And he said, quote, The song was written out of desperation. Out of desperation. These words seem appropriate for this same first century father that we read about this morning in our story who brought his only son to Jesus. And after discovering that Jesus' disciples could not heal his son and that the scribes, the masters of the law, had no answer for his condition. Nothing that would deliver this man's son. The father turned to Jesus saying, No less than help. I need somebody. And not just anybody, as it seems. Not just anyone. The Holy Spirit shows us in this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 9 that this is the central theme to this entire chapter and that is one of faith. A God who helps us when we are weak in our faith. That the world needs Jesus. That the world needs the help that only Jesus can provide. In this passage today we find several specific areas of limitation. That are meant to drive us to the point of crying out for God's help. They're meant to bring us to that point where we cry out, help. I need someone not just anyone. I need God's divine help. Three limitations that we're going to discover this morning that we see in God's word. The first one is the power of humanity over evil. The power of humanity over evil. The second one is the power of the church. The power of the church. Number three, the power of the law for salvation. The first one, the power of humanity over evil. Notice there in your Bible, when Jesus arrives onto the scene, the father of this son seeks Jesus out. When Jesus comes to this place, he's coming with Peter, James, and John. Remember, Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had all these questions for Jesus about Elijah and all that stuff we looked at last week. And now they're joining the rest of the disciples. And when they get there, the rest of the disciples are having a debate, some type of argument with the scribes. The scribes were the experts of the law. They were having some type of disagreement. And as Jesus and his disciples come, he, he asks the question, what are you guys talking about? There's a crowd that starts to see Jesus and there's a man in the crowd who sees Jesus and evidently this man was there with the other disciples and the scribes. And most scholars believe that the scribes and the disciples were having a disagreement based upon this man's need. Based upon his issue because of what he says later. He says, this is a problem with my son. He's possessed of an unclean spirit of a demon and your disciples can't help. Christian tradition is that the scribes and the disciples were debating as to why the disciples couldn't cast out the demons. Maybe the disciples were surprised by this. We discover later that they're definitely disappointed by it. What could that surprise have looked like for them? 
But this father seeks Jesus out because all other options have failed. All other options have failed. This, de- this demon possession had taken away this young man's natural ability to communicate. It was life-altering. It even became life-threatening. It affected his social standing. John Calvin suggests that this man, because his father said this demon has often cast him into onto open flames and into water, that this, man's, this young man's body was probably marred physically, that you could probably see burns on his body because of this demon possession. And because of that, I'm sure it affected his social standing in the community. He was probably considered a castaway, a a downcast person. Jesus leans into the situation more and he asks the father how long his son has been like this. Do you see that? How long has he been like this? The father's answer is from childhood. See, this wasn't a new phenomena. This is something that the boy had been dealing with and that his family had been dealing with and his community had been dealing with for many, many years. This demonic possession had become comfortably embedded into this young man over a long period of time. It had become so much a part of his identity that though others could see how markedly different he was from other people, the young man himself probably forgot who he used to be. And that his own personal identity was distinct from the demon that was possessing his body and his mind. How could he ever begin to realize his own identity as a human being created in the image of God? Mark's gospel shows that no one, no one could help this man. No one and nothing in the natural world The power of humanity, of technology, and all the other things that we can come up with could not do it. There's a limitation to the power of humanity over evil. The first century world was just as powerless to convince this young man as our world today. The 21st century world might encourage him to embrace a new identity. You don't have to identify as a human being creating the image of God for God's glory. You can identify as something completely different. Just shift gears a little bit. You don't have to be restored. You don't have to be delivered. You don't need a new heart, a new mind. Furthermore, there's nothing wrong with you, our world would tell this young man today. So don't let anyone tell you that there is. You're just fine the way you are. This is simply the new you. Embrace it. The limitations of our world today over the power of evil seem obvious. And why? The Bible tells us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our world today has a twisted way of thinking about humanity and about the image of God. That is to say, we operate with the same broken moral compass as every human being who has ever lived. Our world today is no different from the first century world. I would say, in many ways, it's worse. 
when we think about our problem and whether or not we actually need help. Do we believe that our world needs help today? The world has never been very good at diagnosing evil. Never. And it won't start anytime soon. One evidence for that? Watch the news. Over the last week, we have seen people publicly expressing their views that certain human beings are not worthy to live and breathe. I have never seen in my lifetime, I've heard stories from my parents of things that they experienced in the race riots of the 1960s. I've never experienced in my lifetime the type of racism and hatred towards other human beings that I've heard and watched this week. Some of you may have been exposed to that early in your life. I have never seen it on this scale. The way that we call evil good. The way that we misdiagnose the value of human beings. We tend to think that we're progressing, that all of that is behind us. That technology and illumination and education and all these other things, that we can educate ourselves out of immorality, but we can't. We, can't, we never have, we never will. Our world today has, standing all across Europe and the United States, the oldest institutions for modern education that have educated us up to the, to the brim of our ability with morality, moral systems, philosophies, religions, and they cannot fix us. There is only one who can help, and it's Jesus. We are significantly limited in exercising power over evil because we are sinful creatures and we live in a sinful world. This is what Jesus is showing his disciples here. There's a kind of evil that exists in the broken world. There are demonic powers at play. Peter says that your enemy, the devil, is roaming around like a lion. He's on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. That's the kind of world we live in. And until Jesus comes again, that's the kind of world we live in. There are limitations to the power of humanity over evil. We need help. And we must cultivate a faith that seeks help from God in Christ because we have limited power over evil. And we must never stop seeking the Lord. We must confess our limitations to God. All the time. Christians cannot operate like the rest of the world. We just can't do it. We have to as his disciples. Be different. The world denies that evil exists. And that things are really as bad as they seem. We cannot be so naive. We cannot normalize or excuse perversion. In the world around us. Simply because we feel powerless to stand against the powers of darkness. 
I have felt very powerless this week. I don't know about you. We need help. Our world needs help. And we have help in Jesus. The second limitation that we discover here is the power of the law. The scribes had no solution. When Jesus looks at the crowd and he says in verse 19, see it there in your Bible, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Who's he talking about? I believe he's talking about everybody in the room. The scribes, the man, the father, and even his disciples. He calls them this generation, an unbelieving generation. But he he includes these scribes in this. Well, they had the law. They were masters of the law. They had the word of God. They knew it. Like the back of their hand. So why is it that they couldn't do anything in this situation? They had no solution for this problem. This problem of extreme evil and pain. And Jesus uses this, not only in this conversation with his disciples, but later on he's going to talk about it again in chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 when he talks about Divorce and the way men think about women and men think about the law and what they can get away with under the law and what it allows. He's going to challenge these views about the law in the next couple of chapters. But here he points out that the scribes had no solution. And the scribes, of course, were goading the disciples. Uh, You guys, following Jesus, this new rabbi from Nazareth, you have no power, see? But they didn't either. They didn't have any power in this situation either. Now this shows us that the law of God, the Old Testament law of God has a role, a specific role, and it also has limitations. The Apostle Paul talks about this constantly in his epistles, but especially in the book of Romans. So if you hold your place there, And turn over to Romans chapter 3. Almost the entire book of Romans is about how the law and the gospel complement each other. How they're different. And every now and then Paul just really cuts to, really gets to the point. And there are some verses, there are some statements that really clarify the role of the law. We see it in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You get that? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, not the justifying power to overcome sin or to be forgiven for sin. He goes on and he says in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, the role of the law and the prophets are to give witness to what? The gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ. Even, he says, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. For all those who, what? Believe. Jesus says, oh, you unbelieving generation. This is what the scribes need. They don't need more law. They need to believe. They need to believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came in His own words not to abolish the law, not to wipe it out, not to make it null and void, but to complete it, to answer its questions, to fulfill it, to be the righteousness that comes from God. And so, Romans tells us, believe that's where your justification comes from. There's a weakness in the law. It has no power to save. There's a limitation to the help that the law can give you. And so if you're a legalist, if you're a legalist who thinks that if you do certain things to make yourself right with God, and if you try hard and try hard and try hard, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a hard wall at some point in your life where you're going to discover that you need help. And the gospel says there is help. There is a helper. It's in Jesus Christ. He fulfills all the demands of the law. He's the Holy One who died for you in your place. And the only way that you can be delivered from the power of sin and death and hell and this world is by faith alone in Christ alone. So by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We see again in Romans chapter 8. Turn a few pages over. Such a powerful passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are experts in the law. Nope. That's not what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. He said, goes on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law, listen to this, for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. What a powerful statement. God did. How did He do it? How did He do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus is our help. He is our help. He fulfills the requirement of the law, verse 4 says. In us. Who do not walk according to the law, but according to what? The Spirit of life that is at work in us. Amen? Praise God. Legalism will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. The law does not have the power to save, brothers and sisters. Only Christ Himself has the power to save. So there's a limitation to the power of humanity over evil. We see the limitation of the power of the law. And then finally we see the limitation of the power of the church. Now you'll remember Jesus has already said 
I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church will be successful. My church will live and it will last forever. The church has seen many, many frightening days. Moments where the church believed it might have, it was on the brink of extinction if you just look at the numbers. And we might be tempted to think that the power of the church lies in the church itself. But the church and the disciples are told here that we have no power apart from Jesus. Jesus must be our help in all things. Verse 18, we discover the disciples say to Jesus, or I'm sorry, the man says of the disciples, he says, I told your disciples in verse 18 to cast the demon out and they could not do it. The scribes may have been taunting the disciples at this point, debating because of the disciples' inability to cast out the demon. But when Jesus, in verse 19, addresses the generation, He means everyone present. But He includes His own disciples as part of an unbelieving generation. Even as Christ's disciples, these men struggled to exercise faith and failed to properly represent the supernatural power of the kingdom of God. It's one of the sad truths about the church and about those who follow Jesus. Even these disciples who had been following Him, who had been privy to conversations with Him that other people weren't privy to. They got to see Him in ways that other people didn't get to see. You would think they could handle this. We stress a lot at Grace Fellowship Church the, the idea that we should be maturing in our faith and growing up in our faith. And that's, that's what God tells us in His Word. He says, this is my will for you, your sanctification. He actually gives us to one another as members so that we grow together. The Bible says to mature. We should be maturing and growing. But we never grow. We never mature beyond the point of needing help from Jesus, ever. He is our help. He reminds us of this here. Now, why is it that they had uh, no answer? Verse 28, this is what they, this is what they ask. Why is it that we, we can't respond appropriately to this extreme manifestation of evil in the world? Why? What's our, what's our problem? Jesus says, essentially in verse 28, He essentially says in verse 28, you're going to hate to hear this, maturing Christian. But Jesus says to His disciples, you are not enough. You are not enough. We need to hear that today, church. I need to hear that today from the Lord just as much as you do. That Grace Fellowship Church is not enough for Maricopa. The Christian church is not enough for the world. 
It means, and no matter how much we saturate the globe with missionaries or new churches or trends, cutting edge technology, any, any of these things, we will never be enough for a lost and broken world. Now that doesn't make much for a rah-rah speech, does it? To get you fired up to do things. So why does Jesus do it here with his disciples? Why are they shown their limitation? So they can depend on him. And know that he is the answer. Christian brother and sister, you will never be enough for your spouse. You will never be enough for your best friend. For your neighbor. For your kids. For your parents. For your co-workers. You'll never be enough. You need to unload that for just a minute. Remove those burdens off of your shoulders. Come to the realization that the people around you need help, not just anybody's help. But they need Jesus' help. This is why Jesus gets to this point. He brings the disciples to this point when he talks about prayer and fasting in verse 29. Because prayer and fasting is utter dependence upon God. It doesn't mean you can't do anything. It just means you can't accomplish this in your own power. Or on your own timetable. For some people this is an untenable scenario. We can't stand this type of scenario. Most people prefer action. We love the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We like things that tell us, Go, therefore. Teach. Baptize. Go. And do these things. That's what we like. Why is it that the Great Commission fires people up so much? Could it be self-glory? Sometimes I think it is. Speaking for myself, that is. Why does the Great Commission in, Mark, in uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, fire us up and Mark 9, 29, deflate us completely and leave us scratching our heads? Jesus takes all of the emphasis off of the disciples and off of us and puts it onto our Heavenly Father when He tells them and He tells us to fast and to pray. He's inviting the disciples to do something that is unnatural for them and for us and that is to surrender control. This is perhaps the most difficult decision that Christians make during times of crises. Surrendering control. Surrendering the impulse to explain everything away. To make things better. Jesus shows us here that these actions under such circumstances are the actions of unbelievers. It's hard to hear. Stepping up your faith game, according to Jesus, is not more control and more manipulation. It's total surrender. It's waiting. It's watching. Over and over in the Old Testament, the challenge for God's people is to wait. 
Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. He will supply you with everything that you need. And so the Old Testament writers will say things like, some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We will wait upon Him. He is our Eleazar. He is our Azar. He is our help. We will wait upon Him. We will watch for Him. It's a silent pleading. It's not seeking a quick fix to spiritual problems, but being willing to step away from the good things in life, like food, and business, and pleasure. Stepping away from these things in order to focus one's energy and attention on the Lord for an extended period of time in earnest desperation for Him to intervene. And I confess to you as your pastor, I don't do this enough. We don't do this enough as a church. The church today in America doesn't do this enough. The church around the world doesn't do this enough. Wait on the Lord. Pray and wait and depend upon Him. Jesus shows His disciples here and He shows the church today that we have limitations. The power of evil in this world is so great in the world around us and in our own hearts. We need help. Christian, you have limitations. We have limitations. But we have help, the Bible says, from above. And His power supply is endless. Endless. There's an old hymn. It says, Our God, O God, our help in ages past... Our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast. And our eternal home. 